This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this country and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to Under One Blue Roof, your podcast exploring the problem of climate-driven homelessness. Here, we ponder some of the big questions about housing, social justice, planetary boundaries and more, and listen to stories from experts in the field who explain just how it's all related. Let's get to know the human face of climate change. And thanks for joining us under One Blue Roof. I'm your host, Marushka Saldana, a Master of Environment student and social enterprise practitioner. Today we're talking about climate risk and resilience, and I'm joined on the show by Joe Glester. Joe is the co-founder and chief everything officer at Climasense. Over the past decade, he has worked in a multitude of positions, including with CSIRO's Data61 and the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning that have allowed him to develop and deliver innovative projects with real impact. He has worked on a number of different digital technologies through deep immersion in the nexus of industry, government and startup engagement. He is passionate about emerging technology and is changing the face of climate change resilience as we speak. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, good to be working with an alma mater. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. Uh, We both have come out, I guess, I'm still in uh, the Master of Environment uh, at the University of Melbourne. It's so funny. You you look at the network now of those who are close to you within sustainability, and they're either Monash (laughs) or Melbourne, um, a sprinkling of RMIT, but there's just like connecting nodes of everyone working in sustainability and environment basically all hit the uh those circles those university circles i know that you are an alumni and have had a very interesting journey uh from i guess student to professional to entrepreneur what would be great to start off with is just taking it back to where you have come from if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about your life growing up at home and what sparked your interest in sustainable cities and regions. Good one. Where, where do we start? Yeah. This album is dedicated. And to the music of some sort of something something Brooklyn in the 90s. The buildings that I was hustling for that called the police on me when I was just trying to make some money to feed my daughter. So I was born and raised in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, and ended up moving to Australia at about five years old because we lived in a pretty bad neighborhood. Popped over to Australia and um, my dad's an architect and my mom's an artist and actually um, really was the land of milk and honey for them. Um, it was just a lot of opportunity and it was incredible to be here. So my formative years from five to 10 were spent in Australia and uh, weird that I never picked up that accent, but uh, I guess Brooklyn kind of uh, hard to take the boy out of Brooklyn. <laughs> um, and so uh, we lived in Sydney. So we went from one urban center to another. And um, I think what was so profound to me at a young age was um, living in beautiful cities and living in very dense cities. 
right? Um, seeing the contrast. And um, I think that stuck with me. Uh, we ended up moving back to New York at 10 and going right back into it. And um, yeah, living in that dense urban environment, again, I craved nature um, the way that Sydney had it when I was a child. So um, over the years, I actually started to get into horticulture and landscaping. And one of my first jobs is actually doing um, unbelievably fancy multi-million dollar uh, penthouse landscaping. And so I started to see a view of uh, New York from above and work on these beautiful gardens, looking down into other landscapes across New York. That was kind of where that fascination and passion came from about nature and our cities. I then moved into the Hudson River Park Trust, which I had a horticultural job there. So I lived and worked um, near Manhattan's most bougie area, um, basically doing manicured gardens along a pristine six mile stretch. And that's when I realized at that time, like, oh man, I'm just like fascinated by nature in the city, the way that people interact here, um, the way that the city just kind of springs around it and that nature is such an essential part. And that really flowed into me uh, throughout the years and actually made me go back to Australia to pursue my master's and focus on green infrastructure and climate change adaptation. Um, and so, yeah, I think cities really shaped me from early on to understand what it's like to live in such a dense city and then live with nature within a dense city. Um, and then how do we protect it? How do we nourish it? How do we grow it? How do we make our cities thrive? Um, in the face of climate change. And I think that's really been my mantra since day one. And um, the early beginnings of my uh, master's thesis was focused on that, which has since culminated into uh, the idea for the startup I have and have been working on for the past six years. I can't help but, you know, look around when I'm in the city and think about this incredible dichotomy that you see between the built environment and the natural environment and how these seemingly opposing forces can coexist so beautifully. And New York is certainly another incredible example of how cities can thrive. And I've actually spent a little bit of time there myself, um, just having family in, in the city. And yeah, there's nothing better than walking through leafy green streets and beautiful green open spaces when you're in the middle of the hustle and bustle of city life. And of course, that comes with a lot of challenges as well as opportunities when you're thinking about placemaking. And we know that climate risk is a very real threat to the way people live and their quality of life in cities. Climasense is demonstrating that with the right tools, climate risk can be intelligently transformed into climate resilience, which gives people the data they need to make informed decisions about their communities. And this is really important in a time where climate-induced resettlement is becoming more frequent and costly both to people and to the environment. So what is Climasense and how did it get started? I guess building on uh, my last little snippet there, um, really it was an idea that spun out of a master's thesis focused on creating a green infrastructure policy for the city of Melbourne. 
So it was back in 2015, 2016. And within that thesis, I had an idea um, that was essentially, if we were to monitor green infrastructure and the assets around it, we could actually understand how a city is adapting and reacting to climate change in real time. So that's where it started. That was its inception, but a mere thought, um, but a sentence in, in, a, in a thesis. And um, I kind of had that moment in time where I could either um, pursue a startup or pursue a PhD um, to kind of move it to that next level. And um, part of me really wanted that academic validation, but the other part of me said, no, you're a Brooklyn boy with a gift for gab and can do sales. So um, maybe just try your hand at a startup. And um, yeah, that's where I started. And um, the many years that followed, I had a couple up and down founders to begin with, and then found my A team going back into New York. Um, I reached out and found a fantastic um, coalition of the willing, my co-founders uh, based on New York City's Urban Systems Lab, who are already thinking along these lines. And um, that's how Sense City, which was the original inception of Climate Sense, started out um, and then emerged into Climate Sense over the years. And what Climate Sense is today is a uh, climate intelligence platform that helps uh, decision makers make informed decisions about climate risk. And what we do is connect past historical climate information, real-time weather information, and future climate risk together into one platform uh, that allows uh, practitioners from a multitude of different agencies, organizations, businesses, um, basically baseline what their risk is and understand what it's going to be in the future. I think that's it in a nutshell. Um, what we're focused on right now is heat. It's highly underserved within the technology stack. And the fact is um, the, you know, the silent killer. Um, flooding, as we've seen this past year alone, has been very over, very destructive. Um, and lots of funding goes into it because, yeah, it's overtly damaging. Um, with heat, we don't know. We often don't know how bad it's actually affecting people, what the mortality is, um, and where those people are most at risk. And that's what we're seeking to uncover, is to assess where people are most vulnerable to heat, um, and then provide information to those to respond and prepare and plan um, in the face of worsening heat risk. And you mentioned heat as a form of extreme weather that really comes through as something that doesn't get a lot of attention perhaps in comparison to some of the other types of natural disasters that we see that, as you say, are much more visible and the scale of damage is immediately understandable and in your face. But heat really does have a profound effect on people's lives and livelihoods and a very common issue that we're facing being in Australia where you get temperatures of, you know, high 40s, low 50s in in some urban centres and certainly regionally. So we know that it has this effect on people's lives and especially people who are vulnerable, people who are at risk. And often that's the case with the climate crisis. It disproportionately impacts vulnerable people, so people who are elderly or have pre-existing medical conditions, people on low incomes. You know, I think about 
the amount of um, individuals that I work with um, who can't afford to switch on their air conditioning when it's really, really hot out. And people experiencing homelessness who have no safe or secure shelter, no way to weatherproof the places that they live. And the list goes on. So what does ClimaSense do in practicality to map and reduce the risk of heat in urban populations? And how do we identify and protect those who are most vulnerable? So from a practical standpoint, we're aiding decision-making, right? Um, Where these decisions are made and how they're made is not up to us. But what we realize is that there is a gap in that information flow uh, to various actors within disaster resilience, within climate change adaptation, within emergency management, and then, of course, having uh, smart city insights and, and that of that nature to provide the analysis. So in essence, we're providing the data, the visualization, the contextualization in the simple format to make it easy to understand and make those decisions, because honestly, that's where those people are in the role. They know enough, but they need the validation and verification to make those assumptions and turn them into action. Where we're going, we'll end up going into decision support. So uh, turning the information we gather into something a lot more refined. But where we are today is essentially that standpoint. In terms of how we do it, look, we're ingesting demographic, socioeconomic data um, and different climate risk information. And we're just putting it all in one nice package. That's often what's missed. We've seen a lot of fantastic research organizations do the same thing over many years, but they sit on a shelf. And that's because sometimes the UI isn't strong enough or the user experience hasn't been thought through enough to make it lasting. So what we're here to do is put our feet down and change that. Uh, Let's not make it an afterthought. Let's make something useful. Let's make something that's not going to sit on the shelf. Let's let's make something that's going to end up actually powering the engine of climate change adaptation across our councils, across our organizations, so that decisions can be made decisively and effectively. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you did with the Australian Red Cross? I think that's an excellent example of the impact that it's had on communities. Well, we've been working with the Tele-Ready team, um, who basically are making sure that people, uh, the most vulnerable populations, are adequately prepared and catered to. And this service is often uh, run by volunteers who are locating those people, giving them a call to see if they're okay. What we provided was data and insights to allow those teams to basically assess where the most vulnerable people are so they could target those types of communications and make sure that um, when and if heat events happen, those targeted communications are hitting the right spot. That for us is impact. It's making sure that people are aware they're doing the right things and the Red Cross is handling the nuts and bolts of actually triaging and operationally supporting these people. And I know that as well, you've gone through the Humanitech ecosystem of having access to a lot of different networks and being a part of the program. And has that made a difference to where the organization started and where it's heading now? Undoubtedly, Humanitech was and still is and the most valuable program we've gone through. It gave us the capital 
the frame of mind, the interaction, the partnership with the right people at the right time to basically get us from where we were as Sense City, which was focusing on real-time information using hardware, to something that's much more top-down. We're able to validate our assumptions. We went into a pilot phase to actually trial. And then, lucky enough for us, we're able to secure the scale-up grant in order to now get us to where we are today, which is moving fast and, and knocking down doors of different organizations across Australia. So it was formative and incredible. And the value that we got out of it from the general support of the Telstra Foundation financially has been incredible to us as well. It's really wonderful to see the support, I guess, from seed funders and philanthropic organizations more broadly make all the difference when it comes to taking an idea or a business in its formative stages and really transforming it into the vision that I guess you had for it right at the beginning. And certainly it allows you to really focus on the work that you're there to do. And um, it's just that enabler, I think, that anyone on their startup journey can relate to. And it's great to see how the organization has come out on the other side of that. So we know that climate change is happening right now. It's pretty obvious. It's hard to ignore. Uh, The crisis that's unfolding when bushfires and floods are at our doorstep um, has seen people feeling the consequences of extreme weather events. And as a result, I think we can agree that behaviour and mindsets definitely need to shift in response and quickly. So can you share your insights on how nature versus human-made environments respond to the impacts of climate change? They're two very different entities. We might be able to harness the learnings from the natural environment and tap into those more circular regenerative cycles of doing that better protect citizens and infrastructure. Can you talk to that a little bit? Absolutely. Look, I I did want to put in a caveat here and say that the climate has changed. I think we talk about climate change as often a word that describes the future, but I think the climate has changed. So now what we're experiencing is disasters, right? These extremes are because the climate has changed. So undoubtedly that's here and the way in which we build biophilically into the future is unbelievably important. In fact, one of the best classes I ever took at university was led by Dr. Dominique Hess. It's called Regenerating Sustainability. And that was transformative to me because I learned the importance of biophilic design and regenerating our cities through nature, using different principles for climate-sensitive urban design to make sure that what we do now is fit for purpose, knowing that things are going to get worse, knowing that the way in which we interact in our cities is going to change. We have to respond, and we have to respond with a climate-sensitive design way of leading things. And oftentimes, that is imbuing our city with natural environments, be it green roofs, green walls, parks and trees. These really should be treated as the hearts and lungs of the city, as part of an ecosystem, a network that need to be able to survive and thrive and support us through their ecosystem services. 
Um, so, look, my opinion on this is the greener the city, the better we're going to be. Um, we look at Singapore as a prime example of that and other fantastic cities around the world that are using placemaking and green infrastructure integrated throughout to make much more robust and climate resilient cities. We had a really interesting session with the Melbourne Centre for Cities not too long ago, and we were discussing exactly that. How do we bring regenerative cycles and ways of doing back into the city and making that the forefront of how people live and work and interact in these spaces that we spend so much time in and we need so much of nature to thrive and it is balanced complex sometimes you know chaotic relationship that humans and the environment have but it very much is two-way and we are incredibly reliant on the environment for survival and because we spend so much time in urban places and cities it only makes sense that we need to rethink how we're building and shaping places so that they are more sustainable in and of themselves but also for us as well. And I guess to wrap up what we've been talking about, the environment is at a very fundamental level, the air that we breathe, the food that we eat and the places that we live. And we know that if we want to create and maintain thriving communities, we really need to take steps to protect the ecosystems that give us life, right? So Could you tell us about your vision for a sustainable and equitable climate future? And while technology is certainly not a silver bullet, what role might it play in helping us use data to anticipate, prepare for and respond to the climate emergency on a broader scale? Look, I never thought technology would be where I landed. Technology was merely a way to capture quantitative data to validate what we already knew. I was working from a green infrastructure standpoint, surrounded by researchers who had spent so much time and energy just trying to get the point across that this is the right thing to do. Technology is the vehicle to get that point across more coherently and transparently. So the future is generating data that validates the assumptions that we have It allows us to act on those assumptions to make effective investment decisions when it comes to green infrastructure, blue infrastructure, insurance, micro-insurance for different communities to help and support them, different funding uh, methods and grant opportunities for people who need it to basically get ready and get prepared. I don't know what our coastal cities will look like in the future. But we're certainly going to be much more inland. And the more inland we get, the more heat gets trapped as well. So we're going to need to start to design and think in that way. Think about how we can bring these types of systems that we know um, from climate-sensitive urban design into the framework of what our future cities will look like. I'm really excited to see what's next. And there's a sense of cautious optimism Uh, that exists when it comes to green cities and the cities of the future. So thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show. Appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me.